first time with us. We are wrapping up a series today on the seven churches of the book of Revelation that is creatively titled The Seven. And we're glad that you are here. If you are interested in any of the rest of these sermons, uh, they are available on iTunes and uh, whatever Android podcast device you may use, you can find through our church website. Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. Let me read this to us. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor are you hot. Would that you be cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I'm rich and I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garment, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him, and I will eat with him, and he will eat with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne." As I also conquered and sat with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let the Spirit, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If you have ever had a point in your life where you felt stuck, could you say stuck? Maybe it was a financial stuck. Or maybe it was a relational stuck. Maybe it was... You felt stuck in your job situation to be stuck. A few years ago, I looked through my closet and I noticed that my jeans were uh, not quite in the shape they needed to be in for me to be wearing them in public. And I needed to pick up some new jeans. And I noticed in the midst of this that the style of jeans had evolved, if you will. So, I went to the mall. I'll be real. I went to one of those factory outlet places and I started to look for jeans that would be a little more stylish given uh, the era that I currently live in as a moderately obese 40-year-old man. And I noticed that there were uh, various jeans and various styles and cuts of jeans that I had never experienced before. The first of those were called skinny jeans. And I will let you know that I sidestepped those very quickly. Because the only skinny jeans that I ever need to wear are maternity pants. There were baggy jeans and straight jeans... And I just kept looking through the sizes, trying to pick the jeans that would be the most appropriate. And I came to a style of jean called the Slim Straight. And I grabbed two pair of them. And I walked into the fitting room to try on these Slim Straight jeans. And I put the pair on all by myself. And I buttoned the jeans. 
And I looked in the mirror, as many of us have looked in the mirror, and said to myself, these are the genes for me. Not too baggy, not too tight. These are the genes that are just right. I'm going to walk out with these after I pay for them. And then I attempted to take them off. (laughs) And I got to my calves, and they were stuck. I don't mean stuck in the way that your child is stuck in the headlock of a father. I mean stuck in Alcatraz, stuck. They were not coming off. And I leaned over and I attempted to just use sheer force to get these jeans off so that I could put on something else. And that did not work. I stood on the stool in the room, jumping from the stool while holding the belt, trying to push them off. I then did what chubby people do in difficult situations. I sat down and took a break. I lay on my back like a drowsy ninja turtle. And tried to roll back and forth to get these jeans off. It hit me at this point, I'm going to have to steal these pants. That's what's going to happen. If you've ever been in a fitting room, you know the door's built for hobbits. And there's an opening underneath. And I heard this gap girl outside. And I thought to myself, Chad, you're going to have to get her attention She and all of her little gap friends are going to have to help you. You're going to have to have tug of war with her. I eventually, I think because of the perspiration, got the jeans off. My chapstick in my pocket melted. But to be stuck, we've all been stuck. We've been stuck in difficult places, unique places, hard places. What do you do when you're spiritually stuck? Because the Bible does give us an idea as to spiritual stuckness. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what Jesus is talking about in Revelation chapter 3, 14 through 22, when he looks at the church at Laodicea. He is talking about a group of people who are not moving anywhere spiritually. Now, we've looked at these churches every week and we've asked the same three questions because Jesus poses the same three questions for us as followers of him. The first thing we have to look at when we look at this passage is what can we learn about the church? Because what we learn about the church tells us something about their situation, their their context, what's taking place all around them. So we look at that church. We then ask, well, what does this passage say to us about Jesus? Because the point and purpose of the Bible is to talk to us about Jesus. The goal of the Bible is Jesus. What does this text show us about Jesus? And the final question that we see is, well, what does this say? All of these things that we've taken in, their context, Jesus in the midst of their context, what does this say to us? Because the Bible always has a message to us. And when you read through this text, you see a church that's stuck, and Jesus enters into his conversation with them, in the midst of their stuckness and he is about to point out that that is an issue and the question that they have to ask is will we receive this for all of us in this room who happen to be followers of Jesus there is the issue of spiritual stuckness the bible word for it or the word that we use regularly is called complacency 
definition for that would be this. Complacency is knowing that you need to do something, yet you have no desire to do it. We've been there. Looking around your house and knowing it needs to be cleaned. Staring at the groceries in your refrigerator and knowing they needed to be, need to be cooked. To be stuck. This is not something that any of us ever like to admit. Because until we admit it, there's nothing we can do about it. Jesus comes into the conversation and he says this, To the angel of the church at Laodicea, write the words of the Amen. Well, well that Amen means something. The, the, the words of the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. The word Amen is a word that you've used a lot. Every time you pray, that's how we close that thing out. Am I right? When you go to bed at night, if you make it through the prayer before you go to sleep, you're going to drop an amen. The word has lots of context. It means, so be it. Or my favorite interpretation of the word is, this is the way it is. The words of the, this is the way it is. That's what Jesus says to us. The faithful and true witness. So this is Jesus saying that he is about to look at the situation in Laodicea. And what he is going to say to them is true even though they may not believe it to be true. Do you have those people in your life that you need to say true things to you? Those people who can say things and you receive them well because you know that they're true. And Jesus is even saying to Laodicea, even though you may not want to acknowledge this, there is truth that is here. The words of the amen, the faithful, the true witness, this is Jesus. Or as we've said every week, hashtag Jesus. Jesus stating clearly, this is who I am as I peer into your lives. The words of the amen, the faithful and true witness. What's he going to say to this city? Well, before we can ever consider what Jesus would say to this city, we need to know who this city is. What is Laodicea? Uh, let me give you three ECs to go with if you like alliteration. And if you don't like alliteration, just call them words. So, the first that we would look at with Laodicea is, it is the economic center of the world that it is in. It is a place where commerce happens. It is a place where spending happens. Financial wealth is at Laodicea. It is a big, big deal. The banking center of Asia at this point. Economic center. Another thing that we see with Laodicea is they have expensive clothes. Because they, unlike other parts of the world, provided a type of wool that, could, that was dark. Everyone else has white wool. Laodicea has this expensive black wool. They were the Gucci or the Armani or the expensive Wranglers of their day. Laodicea was a place that had expensive clothing because they were known in the entirety of the area for this wool that they provided for clothes, for rugs, for whatever else you use wool for. They were also known for their eye care. They were, I noticed one of our members posted the other day about going to the eye doctor. And if you lived in the first century, you would love to be near Laodicea because they had the highest quality eye care of anywhere in their world. That's who Laodicea is. So you have a place that is financially prosperous. 
You have a place that has stuff that they can sell and that has medical needs, a place where medical needs can be met. Laodicea was a really big deal. But they didn't have really good water. That's why Jesus says what he says next. Now, we've all heard this passage preached before because preachers love passages with concrete concepts. Hot and cold. And I remember being in churches very much like our church, except more shirts were tucked in. And when I heard sermons about Laodicea, it would be this. God would rather you be a hot on fire Christian or not a Christian than to be in an in the middle Christian. And I would always remember being in the room and hearing people amen and watching them shake their head. And I remember myself at the point where I got to where I would listen to sermons shaking my head because I'd not thought about what was being said. That line of thinking communicates this. That regardless of where you are, God would rather you not be a Christian than be a Christian. Because we always look at places... And what's taking place in certain areas. We look at Laodicea and we see a couple of of examples that they give us. To let us know what Jesus is talking about. Though they have all of these good ECs that we just pointed out. They don't have really good water. Their water has to come from other places. They would receive water from Colossae. Which we see a, a book named after in the Bible. And that water was really, really cold. It was a a refreshing water, but by the time it got to Laodicea, it had warmed up because the temperature of Laodicea was warmer. The other option, where they the other source of water, where all of their water comes together, was from a place where there were hot springs. Like Hot Springs, Arkansas, you've heard of that. And this water was really, really warm. That's why it's called a hot spring. And when the water would get there, it had gotten cooler because their temperature was cooler than their source so by the time you get to the middle you have water that is not hot and is not cold now hot water has a purpose hot water was healing that's why you go to a hot spring it's a place where you go and you bathe and you you feel better cold water has a purpose it it's refreshing what jesus is saying here It's nothing about us being not Christians or Christians. What he's saying to believers and those who claim to follow him is this. When you look at your life, I want you to be cold. I want you to be refreshing. Are you, as someone who claims to follow Jesus, what we, in our context, call a breath of fresh air? When someone has a conversation with you, are they built up? Are they lifted up? Are they encouraged? They walk away with a sense of betterment because they've had an experience with you. Refreshing. Healing. Are you healing? Do you offer wise words to people who need to hear wise words? Encouraging words to people who need to hear encouraging words? Are you someone who offers any type of healing whatsoever when someone spends time with you? If you are neither, there's a really good chance that you and myself are where Laodicea happened to be 
stuck. Jesus says, I want you to be cold and refreshing. I want you to be warm and healing. I want you to be both. Just don't be neither. Don't be... Don't be nothing. How much healing do you offer? In affirmation? In encouragement? How much refreshment do you offer? Just by not being exhausting. Because we've all been around people who are. And if we as followers of Jesus really believe that God has set us apart, it is a contradiction at best, and it is sinful at its worst for us not to be set apart. Are we a healing people? Another idea from this time, the time period that Jesus lived in was the idea of the host. If you were to go to someone's home, and you were to be received there, they would offer you wine in one of two ways. They would offer it with a little bit of snow to make it cold, or they would offer it with warm water to make it hot. Now, because we're all, or lots of us, are recovering Baptists, we need to leave this wine illustration for a moment. But imagine that you as a coffee drinker go to the Starbucks or the Brew and Bake or one of the various coffee places that our area offers. And you go to get your mocha or your latte or your pumpkin spice. I mean, when did we start dropping pumpkins in everything? But you go to get your thing. You've got two options for that, really. You want it really, really hot. Maybe it's a cold day in Lake Jackson, like 84 degrees. <laughs> or you want it really, really cold. Because you want it to, to be refreshing to you. What you don't want it is tepid or lukewarm. Look, when Jesus talks to us, he's not speaking a different language. I mean, he was. But we've interpreted it so that we can understand the words that are there. He's speaking two situations for our advancement. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. I'm sorry. Verse, verse 15. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. However, because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. Jesus seems to be very serious about tepid followers. Yet far too often, it does not seem that followers seem to be serious about being a lukewarm Christian. For you, Jesus says, <laughs> here's what he points out. You've got all these excuses. You say that I'm rich. Well, why would they be rich? Because of the economic center of the world. And they look at their place and they say to themselves, of course we're well off. You say that I'm rich. And, and I have prospered. The, the proof of their prospering is that they own these garments that are so, so nice as far as black wool goes. And you need nothing. 
Not realizing that Jesus says you are wretched, you are pitiable, you are poor, you are blind, and you are naked. Jesus says to the church at Laodicea, you're far away. You're far, far off. But because we're looking at messages to churches, we have to look at this in our, from the perspective Jesus would have for us. Are we far off? The common language that we would use to talk about this is, do we, as people who claim relationship with Jesus, we're talking stickers on cars, T-shirts, people who gather together in this building on every uh, weekly. Are we lukewarm? Are we claiming a prosperity that is not there? Are we claiming because we have certain things in line and in order to be People who were living for Christ's sake, when in actuality, it does not seem to anyone who really knows us that we do. You are wretched, pitiable, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Then Jesus goes back into his illustration. His illustration about what they provided and what they had. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire. Don't settle with what you have as a community in Laodicea. So if God's going to speak to us in light of what's taking place here, don't find your value in what is in your checking account. So this begins to talk to us about what we cling to and what we hold on to and what we give and what we don't give and how we view the, miss, the mission of God as a church. Do we see the eternal value of our goods being used for the greater good? Our resources being something that leads us to being a church that props Jesus up. Do you use your resources personally? Saying that these are not ultimate, but Jesus is. Jesus goes on and he says this. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. And white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Again, they have this wool that is unlike any wool in the world. And Jesus says, what you've got in and of yourself is not good enough. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. So he's telling people to see. They can't see. Sometimes we can't see beyond our faces. To see the world the way that Jesus seems to see the world. To see our neighbors in the way that Jesus seems to see our neighbors. To see our community in the way that Jesus seems to see our community. Because we are stuck. Because we all struggle with this. The passage says this. Those whom I love, I reprove... And I discipline. 
I love verse 19. And the reason I love verse 19 is it reminds us that Jesus is talking to a church. There's lots of, there are lots of arguments with this passage. Is Jesus talking to Christians or not? Well, Jesus just told us he's talking to people he loves. So this lets any of us know that may happen to be stuck right now in some type of weird, odd complacency. There is hope for you. There's hope for you beyond this. So for all of us that are trying and trying and trying, Jesus just says, I'm I'm for you. Those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. So the most obvious thing that we have is if you've got a kid, you don't discipline them because you're frustrated with them. You discipline them because you love them. Maybe you discipline them for your own, for your own sake. But in, in, at the end of all, when we look at why we choose discipline, we are not doing it because it's easier for us, because discipline is difficult. Do you know how easy it would be to tell my kids, just go to your iPads and never leave them? Go inside of it. But to go to them when they wrong one another and hurt one another or wrong me or hurt me or hope. To go to them when they do things that are wrong. That's because we love them. Jesus points out to us through the church at Laodicea. I am telling you that you're stuck because I love you. It's a really good thing to hear. Those who I love, I reprove and I discipline. So be zealous and repent. The word repent, as we have mentioned regularly, is to turn away from and to turn towards. What Jesus is pointing out ultimately is, in the midst of their stuckness, the church at Laodicea, very much like some of the other churches who struggled, they were focused on themselves and on what they had in and of themselves in a way that caused them to miss Jesus. And the ultimate sin for any of us as believers is to miss Jesus. For us to miss that Jesus is the focus. Jesus is the point. Jesus is the goal. Jesus then says a verse that we've all heard and we love. Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. Now there's lots of types of knocking, but there are three that stand out to me the most. The first type of knocking is when someone is going door to door in your neighborhood trying to sell you something that you inevitably will throw away. And if that person is a nervous salesman, they're going to knock on the door quickly. And that knock is going to be like this. And then if you don't come quickly, they're going to go to the next house. If you've ever heard that knock, say knock. The second type of knock is the familiar knock. It's the knock of the neighbor who you spend lots of time with. It's the knock of the kid from down the road who knows you pretty well. It's the knock that we all use when we go to a friend's house. And it sounds a little bit like this. Is that your knock? That's not the knock that Jesus is talking about here either. The other knock is the knock of a mom or a dad when their kids have the door shut. But they're going in. And they give the kid the courtesy knock as they twist the knob and they walk through. I mean, I'm letting you know I'm coming, but barely. Because that's family. 
Jesus stands at the door and knocks in that sense. Because we're family. And he actually says that. I stand at the door and I knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I'll come in. He's not going to beat the door down like I do sometimes. He's knocking that familiar knock. I'm going to come in and I will eat with you. You're going to eat with me. It's a family thing. Whenever you see eating in the Bible, it's showing us relationship beyond acquaintance. When Jesus tells us about his death and resurrection, he doesn't do it with theology. The first way he explains it is with a meal. When we sit down to have conversations with one another, I would encourage us to to do that over a meal because that causes any frustration to be gone because you can't cross your arm while you're eating a french fry. It's family. I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice, I'm going to come in, I'm going to eat with you, you're going to eat with me. Jesus takes this family analogy further and he says this, The one who conquers... I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. Why? Because I, as I also conquered, I sat down with my father on his throne. This is Jesus showing that our allegiance as followers is to God revealing himself to us in Jesus. It's us being made part of a family that was not ours. It's us having a father... Not only who is our creator, but who loves us, who cares for us, who sent his son in our place. It's Jesus saying to us, this is what family is. My life is strange. And I've walked through some pretty difficult things. When I was 16, my mom passed away with cancer. And that's, that's hard for anybody. 16, you're going through some really weird phases in life. It was really difficult for me. At the age of 24, my my brother, uh, we found out that he had cancer and that that cancer was terminal. So I lost my mom and my brother in an eight-year span. And then uh, 2015, nine years later, I get a call and I go to the hospital because my dad has had a um, a heart attack and, and he's passed away. And I made really hard decisions that all of us have to make in the midst of that. And I did what lots of people do when they look around them and see how, honestly, how hard life can be. I was throwing a pity party. And I remember, I know that I was throwing a pity party because I was eating two scoops of ice cream a day. And I remember that my father-in-law were having a conversation and my father, he's just the best man. I, I, there is no one in my life who reminds me more of Jesus than my father-in-law. He is also basically an assassin. So don't ever mess with us. <laughs> but I remember Mike and I were, we were sitting down, having a conversation. I just looked at him with my pity party question. Because we've all got our pity party questions. I said, Mike... Whose whole family is dead? 
And he said, Chad, that's why God gave you to us. Lukewarmness causes us to take for granted the invitation that God has extended to us. And somehow we make everything about what's good or bad for us when the, the creator of the universe has literally invited us in. So Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. So for every one of you who's got stuckness happening right now, we're going to sing in a minute. I don't think you're going to get it figured out in the next four or five minutes, next two songs. But what if rather than you just hearing a sermon and being challenged by this thought, we started to be proactive as to how we're going to change because of what this passage teaches us. What of us, what if we as a church, rather than just receiving information, because I've dropped lots of historical references and informative things on us, what if rather than being informed, we were not satisfied with that, but we chose to see how God is going to progress us and change us? Because my challenges are going to get you to a wet parking lot today. But Jesus has a hope for us, and that hope is resting solely in him. So when the band sings, begin to think about steps you're going to take to move away from stuckness. And, and I'll be over here if you need me. I'm, I'm, usually over, I'm always over here to your right-hand side. If you need me to pray with you, encourage you, whatever, I'd love to do that. But more importantly, let's move forward. How will we not be as complacent tomorrow as we were today? Would you bow your heads with me?